Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace and ExpressVPN. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snow. Hello, Stephen. Welcome back to Liftoff. I don't know why I'm welcoming you back. I've been here all along waiting for you for a wow. whole fortnight. Just hanging out here yeah. in the Google Docs, Just waiting, waiting for around. me to come back. Just waiting around. But- yeah, it's like you were in the command module, and you're just waiting for me to, to rendezvous after my trip to the lunar surface. Sure. Yeah. Let's so, just like that. You and your invisible friend who is also yeah, with you're, you. You're you're the Michael Collins of the podcast. That's that's not a bad thing at all. There's a lot going on. Um there is some social media drama involving high ranking executives in the space industry. Weird. There is some <laughs> uh yeah, there's there's some other interesting, strange stuff going on. There's some SLS updates to do, which Woo! is, you know, my favorite part always. Mm-hmm. Um and we've uh yeah, there's there's even a Planet Nine update. We got a lot this week. There is. I want to start with Insight on Mars. Insight, of course, the lander, so not a rover, stationary lander on Mars designed to study the interior of the planet. It's detecting Mars quakes and trying to understand the structure, the the internal structure of the planet. One of the experiments aboard Insight is called the Mole, but it was a, uh, a probe that was designed to be drilled down up to 16 feet under the surface to detect uh, temperature and some other, some other things way deeper than we've ever been uh, on Mars. You know, most stuff we're doing, we're sort of like scratching around the surface. This is a big deal. Back in February, it was announced that the mole had gotten stuck about 12 inches into its 16-foot uh, dig. So quite a far way to go. Initially, it was thought that the mole had hit a rock, right? You can imagine that. There's a rock, obviously, you can't see it till you go down and you hit it, and you can't, sure. can't, and if it's big enough, you can't go around it, you can't move it out of the way. It seems like now it is believed that the soil that the, that the hammer is actually uh, drilling into is the problem. So the way that this is supposed to work is that at the end of this, uh, there's a hammer that's uh, basically compacting and moving dirt out of the way as it goes down. To make it work effectively, there needs to be friction around the hammer on the sides of the hole that it's that it's digging. You know, it's basically creating a, a vertical tunnel and it needs to be touching the sides of the tunnel so it can stay stationary for the hammer to have something to basically push off against. Does that make sense? I'm having a hard time picturing it, but okay. It's hard to describe on a podcast. I'm talking with my hands a lot, but it, need, it basically needs good contact and friction with the sides of the hole that it's digging. And it seems to be slipping, which is why it's not actually making any progress. And instead of uh, holding and then digging further down, it's kind of bouncing around in there, is the, is the theory by uh, the team. It seems like the reason for this is that the soil here is seemingly quite different than what we've seen elsewhere on Mars. And of course, this is 12 inches down, so we're already deeper than other things we've done on the Red Planet. But it is a. Uh, it seems to be clumping together. It's it's not really creating and like falling in around itself the way that it was kind of designed for it to work. Hmm. So what what do you do about this? Well, you could say, well, just pull it back out and try someplace else. The problem with that is when the mole is deployed, that's a one way street. <laughs> it can't be removed and redeployed. So wherever it touched, it, wherever it made contact with the soil, that's where it was going to dig. They can't lift it out. But Insight has a robotic arm with a scoop on the end of it. And they've been working in 
at JPL and other places to understand how this arm could be beneficial. So the plan now is to use the arm to basically push against the side of the the digging apparatus to basically pin it against one side of the hole that it's digging to force it into contact with the edge. Of course, there's issues with this as well. The mole is pretty far out from the lander by design. They didn't want any shadows from the lander to be in the way of the holes. It could it could create uh, variances in the temperature reading. They want to have a good view of it on the cameras. So it's pretty far out. And it's basically at the edge of what the arm can reach. So it, the arm isn't at maximum strength when it's fully extended. So it can't put a lot of pressure on the side of it. But if you can kind of jam it in there and hold against it, maybe that would create enough friction for it to continue to dig. So this is called pinning. They're going to try to pin it to the side of the hole. And that's something the team is going to be trying uh, in the coming weeks. They're also going to try using the scoop to push dirt from the surface and kind of fill in the hole behind the digging apparatus. So if the soil that it's displacing isn't uh, filling in around it and compacting around it, then maybe they could push dirt in from the top and that would help help the issue because the arm does helpfully have a little scoop on the edge and kind of push dirt into it. What I find interesting about this is, A, the ingenuity to say, okay, what hardware do we have? What can it do? Uh, how can we make this work? But uh, I have the link in the show notes. NASA is posting raw images from the camera on the lander. There's uh, uh, 3,000 of them already on this page. You can filter them by date and stuff, which is pretty <laughs> <It's> cool. <good. laughs> um, yeah, it's a lot, right? It's a lot to, to look through. Uh, and they have little captions and, and what you're seeing uh, in each one. But we're going to be able to watch this take place in these raw images that over time as they move towards this pinning process, at some point we're going to see the arm go over there and push against the the side of the mole, which is it's kind of fun. In fact, you can see in the um, in the NASA link in the show notes, uh, you can see the uh, the arm and the the mole going into the into the soil. You can see the scoop and you can kind of see how they're uh, how they're going to try to make this work. So I think that's it's neat to see this ingenuity and this engineering problem unfold basically, you know, in front of our eyes. So it's a, it's a problem hopefully they can solve because this is obviously a big part of what Insight was supposed to do. But even if this doesn't work, there's still lots of science that Insight can do. They're already detecting Mars quakes. They've detected uh, over two dozen at this point. Uh, they're, they're, they're gaining understanding about the internal structure of the planet, but it would sure be great for this tool to work as well. Yeah, I get the sense this is one of those... Um... It's going to be familiar to anybody who's had, you know, tools and hardware issues, maybe in their house or in their backyard where you have the same thing, which is like, hmm, this is like maybe something stuck. And you're like, how do I do this? And what do I have at hand? And, you know, what mm-hmm. they have at hand here is very limited. But I like that there are a lot of smart people who are like, well, what if we took the scoop and pushed it against the thing and then had tried that? And like, they're doing what they can with the geometry of it and what's available, which is not a lot and i like that it would be sad if uh if we don't get deeper with the mole but you know it it go mars is hard we've said even landing there is hard and uh this is i think we might even learn something just in the fact that this is not working and that it's unexpected kinds of mm-hmm. uh of soil that they're in that that is that alone is something that we've learned from this yeah even if this isn't successful you would imagine that that future uh, robotic missions that 
require digging like this, that maybe they can design things where if we encounter this type of soil, uh, we can be better prepared for it. If it, you can't, al- if you can't always count on it behaving in the way that we expect it to, right? So. Change the instrument, have the ability to remove it, have a, a, a you know some other kind of tool that can deploy to kind of wiggle it around or whatever, like. Mm-hmm. Whatever they, I'm sure they're already talking about that for future missions like this. Right. Even in failure, there are things to learn, I think is the the lesson here. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to paint a word picture. Okay. You have Elon Musk uh-huh. doing his thing. Uh-huh. And you have Jim Bryanstein unhappy about some of the things Musk is doing. Mm-hmm. And then they just duke it out on Twitter. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> and live- a very odd... Odd we li- thing. We live well. Jim Bridenstine's uh, the head of NASA. He's kind of being like his boss here, I guess, and just letting things mm-hmm. out on Twitter. Mm-hmm. This is the story here is that uh, so t- uh, so SpaceX held an event about Starship, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, uh, Jim Bridenstine, the head of NASA, tweeted in advance of the SpaceX event, basically saying, um, "Hey." Wouldn't it be great if the uh, commercial crew stuff was on time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the implication there is that SpaceX is distracted by things like Starship and is not fulfilling its duties uh, to commercial crew. Now, yeah, can I can I read the Bryanstein tweet real quick before you go on? Yeah, do it, do it. NASA expects to see the same level of enthusiasm focused on the investments of the American taxpayer. <laughs> <laughs> so <That's> pretty rough. <laughs> so. On one level, I think this is brutal to do in public. I think it might be a little bit unfair because what he's accusing SpaceX of is not being enthusiastic about commercial crew. And I don't think that's true. But Musk's response, first off, is not helpful because he he says, did you mean, what are you talking about late things? Did you mean SLS? Burn. Burn. Ouch. Uh, Yeah. But, um... It did get Musk to say, look, only about 5% of SpaceX is working on Starship. So, you know, we are, he said, working on commercial crew. Um, And also, I will say, even though I I raised my eyebrow at Bridenstine's comment, it kind of feels like it motivated Musk to update everyone about what's going on with commercial crew and to... You know, show that whether whether he was going to the meetings before or not, like show that he, his, he was going to the meetings, show his work. So it might have been effective at prodding Musk a little bit on this. Maybe, you know, the message was sent that we want. Uh, it might not even be like the focus, but like we want the enthusiasm of SpaceX directed toward its next thing. And its next thing is commercial crew and you're, you know, and it's running late. It may also be that Bridenstine was feeling the pressure from up the chain, you know, from somewhere in the executive branch of, of like, why are these guys doing this when, when they're late with our thing that we're, right. we're working on. Um, and so in terms of what the commercial crew update is, um, they are, they are making, you know, they're, they're doing this crew dragon capsule, and the Falcon 9 booster assigned to the in-flight abort test are in Florida. You know, they originally planned to reuse the Crew Dragon from the Demo-1 mission that went to the International Space Station in March uh, for the in-flight abort test. But as 
listeners may remember that capsule was rapidly and unexpectedly disassembled on April 20th mm-hmm. when the hot fire test of the ship's Super Draco abort engines resulted in a loud explosion. Yeah. So and orange yeah. smoke coming from the beach. Yeah. It's never good. It's never Mm-mm. good. So this no. test, if it gets, if it goes off, it's going to verify the Crew Dragon's thrusters, these Super Draco thrusters that they use to pull the spacecraft away from the rocket if they need to abort and get the people away from the rocket after liftoff. It's a very important abort. If you think back to Space Shuttle Challenger, this is the kind of idea is like if there's an accident with the rocket and the rocket is out of control or the rocket is exploding or something like that, what you do is you pop the capsule off and these engines shoot it off to the side away from the explosion or spinning out of control or whatever is going wrong with the the uh, rocket and then the parachutes pop out and you land the people back and that this is a, a, a requirement of commercial crew that you have the ability during a launch to get the people out of there so that's what this test is supposed to do um, the de- the date of it is unknown, although Elon Musk actually earlier today, before we recorded this, said on Twitter, of course it was on Twitter, it would be about 10 weeks. He actually d- did it in reply to a tweet from Eric Berger from Ars Technica about this uh, issue. He, he, he responded directly on Twitter and said, well, actually, it's probably late November, early December uh, that we'll be ready to do this. So they will... Uh, pre-program the Falcon 9's nine Merlin booster engines to to fail, to switch off after they break the sound barrier. Um, this Falcon 9 is going to be sacrificed for this test. It's yeah. not going to... It, it doesn't come back to life. It's it's be, it's made to fail and die as a part of the test. Um, the computer on the Crew Dragon detects the loss of thrust, triggers an abort. Um, this will happen between 83 and 100 seconds after liftoff. And then the Super Dracos ignite and burn and push the craft away um, at all about between 48,000 and 91,000 feet. It's way, you know, way up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then parachutes come out, capsule splashes down, they recover the capsule. They're going to have a whole lot of sensors in there. The whole idea here is like, what did the crew experience? If there was, was a crew in there, what, you know, G-forces, all of that stuff. The parachute design of this capsule has also been an issue. Um, And one of the things I think that Musk went into more disclosure about than maybe he would have done if he weren't prodded by Bridenstine. That's just my theory, but I feel like maybe that he's over-disclosing now to show that they're making progress, is that he was actually at the Parachute Factory, which is in Irvine in Southern California, over the weekend, and they've got a a third design, a Mark III parachute design, and they're going to use that, and they they feel like they've solved the problems because they've been having problems in their parachute tests and that they're going forward with that. So, you know, Musk, of course, he's talking a good game and he's being very positive about it but he says he thinks this is all going to come together before the end of the year now we were talking about this as being the year of commercial crew but it turns out if they succeed in late november early december what we're going to get is this was the year that at least spacex passed all the tests for commercial crew but it'll be next year before they actually if everything checks out they would be able to do the first crew test launch I'm going to put in the show notes, uh, Blue Origin did an in-flight abort test um, at some point earlier this year, and they have video of it on the YouTube channel. I'm going to put that in um, in the notes so you can, you can see it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting to watch the uh, 
the test of this because it it really shows exactly what we're what we're talking about. This capsule is going to get pulled off the top. If you think you mentioned the shuttle, but if you think about Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, they had the the uh, escape tower up top, and you had the the motors up there at the very tip, and it would pull it away. Yeah, it's going to push it away with the super Dracos, but yeah. the same idea to get get out of the way of a rocket that is experiencing a failure. And we saw this with the crew with Soyuz uh, earlier this year, right, mm-hmm. with their ballistic uh, return trajectory. So, yep. very important uh, step, which makes the Boeing update we're going to talk about in a second more interesting to me. But I think you're right about Musk maybe oversharing at this point. I think he's probably reacting uh, strongly to this. But I think that's good because I think it's easy It's easy to look at SpaceX and see what they talk about and what they are excited about, right, and, and what Musk personally talks about on Twitter and other places. And it's not commercial crew. It's all the other stuff. And I think it's – I think one, I think maybe Brian Stein's comment – that just sort of put a name to that feeling for a lot of people. And now SpaceX is hopefully will adjust and hopefully this will be their new course of action moving forward of, hey, as we're sharing about our next rocket and our mission and our view of, you know, going to the moon and Mars and beyond, we're also going to keep you updated about commercial crew in a more informal right. way. And I, I welcome that because it's been really quiet for, you know, most of the time of this program. I think some of the text here is also... I know you like being, you know, Tony Stark and talking about showing off all of the amazing things you're doing and your and your uh, your plans to go to the moon and Mars and all of that and making everybody think that you're amazing. But I'm your boss effectively. How do you rebuke a billionaire? Well, this is this is how you do it. Is you're Jim Bridenstine and you and you say in not so many words SpaceX is reliant on the money that we're paying you and don't forget it. Mm -hmm. And I think that at its core, that's what it is, which is it's great that you're out there doing all this self-promotion about all this stuff that SpaceX wants in the long term. Don't forget that I'm your boss and you're behind on your work. And, you know, how, again, I'm not sure how well Elon Musk reacted to that initially, and he made his crack about the SLS. And the fact is, Boeing is behind too, and that's not Elon Musk's fault that Boeing is behind, and we'll get to that in a second. But um, regardless, I do feel like it had an effect, and I think that's fascinating that maybe Musk did one of those, all right, okay, like after he got the, the... the frustration out of his system. He's like, yeah, no, you're right. We're not communicating enough about the stuff that is our bread and butter that we're working on right now. I, I get too enthusiastic about the stuff that 5% of the people are working on. And maybe that's part of Bridenstine's complaint is really, why are you talking about this thing that is off in the future when we're all supposed to be focused on getting America back in space on its own? And and I think that's, I think he's right about that. Like, let's do this we're behind it should have already happened it you know everybody involved with american uh human space flight has gotten beat up over the you know how much longer it is uh since that last space shuttle flight now like the better part of a decade so um i get it and and it seems to have had an effect which is good totally agree you want to talk about boeing yeah let's talk about boeing so boeing of course has starliner which is their commercial crew uh, capsule. I think it's easy to kind of look at them and SpaceX. Like they're kind of about the same amount done, right? Like they, they're 
they are moving forward in parallel. Boeing still needs to complete a pad abort test, though. So this is an abort test that takes place from the ground. It's not on top of a rocket. SpaceX said this years ago with the Dragon capsule. Uh, that test is not required for the first uncrewed mission to ISS, which, of course, SpaceX has lots of experience there with the cargo uh, Dragon. Boeing, the, the Starliner hasn't flown, so that is uh, something else they need to do. But the, the pad abort test is coming up. Interestingly, I didn't know this until reading the story. The in-flight abort demonstration that we're, we just talked about with SpaceX, actually, actually not a commercial crew requirement. I don't know how that's hmm. possible, but Boeing has, has elected to bypass that demonstration. <sighs> I, I Just off the top of my head, I think it might have something to do with the method that... that spacex is using for their abort where they've got the super dracos built into the capsule and it's got their own very specific thruster whereas i think maybe boeing is using an existing like tower or something to do it it might be something like that's but i don't know for sure so um apologies for an unprepared uh, aside but (laughs) i think it's something (laughs) like that yeah uh, but Boeing is is moving uh, forward with their commercial crew program. So we, we should see the pad abort test. We should see the uh, their first uncrewed mission to ISS. Not, you know, this we're not putting crew on these capsules this year. Like that, you know, 2019 is, is, is over for that. But hopefully 2020, I think SpaceX will beat them there. But Boeing hopefully won't be too far, too far behind. But there's another Boeing story that, that's also really interesting is that they are investing in Virgin Galactic, $20 million to Virgin Galactic uh, to, quote, broaden commercial space access uh-huh. and transform global travel technologies. I blacked out after that in reading this. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it is literally a, we got some money from someone press release that yeah. Virgin Galactic put out. And I don't know what entirely what it means. Um, and whether it's just that Virgin Galactic needs some cash or whether there's something strategic happening with Boeing, like Boeing thinks that down the road there might be an opportunity. They want to be involved in space tourism or they want to be involved in using, you know, some of their technology in next generation, uh, you know, flights, because ultimately, you know, what if this is a bet on a future uh, supersonic, something that can can supplement the existing jet airplane fleet in that part of Boeing? Or is this a kind of like, we just want to place some bets in other parts of commercial space because we're really into commercial space now? I don't know. I don't really know the connection, but it is kind of interesting just to see that Boeing is doing some of this other you know, other stuff and not just it's uh, contracting and commercial crew stuff. Yeah. It's out there making, making investments. They, yep. They've not, they've not contacted the liftoff podcast. So. But no investments from Boeing here? No, yep. no. Well, we're not trying to uh, broaden commercial space access. So there's that. Maybe we should pivot. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. All right. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about, but first let me tell you about our first sponsor, This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store, or you need to set up a portfolio, or you want to write on a blog, or you want to post a podcast, or whatever you want to do. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just about any of it. And there's nothing to install. There's no server patches to worry about. No upgrades are needed. 
You just don't have to worry about that stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. One of my favorite things about Squarespace is the community of people who built things there. They have a really robust question and answer and forum websites and good help documentation. So if you're trying to get something done, you can't quite figure it out. There's going to be someone there to help you. And if you do need to ask a question at Squarespace themselves, their question support really is that good. Plans at Squarespace start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. And we decide to sign up. Use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of the show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for SLS segment here's your host Stephen hackett thank you jason thank you everyone we are here the sls segment space launch system segment it explains geopolitics mechanical systems engineering achievements news and trivia very very catchy mm-hmm. i want to talk about sls pathfinder so the first sls is being prepared we spoke about it last episode that core stage is coming right along and moving towards a green run at Stennis and all these things are going to be uh, approaching here before we know it hopefully but to prepare for this other parts of NASA that don't have an SLS in the garage are running through tests and exercises ahead of it and so they have built the SLS Pathfinder it is a 228,000 pound full size and weight replica so it's not like a hollowed out plywood deal it weighs what the the rocket's core stage weighs it has all the fittings it has all the same hardware it is built to to be as as lifelike as possible without actually being a rocket the idea behind this is you have really complicated difficult things to do and you don't want to do it for the first time on on the actual rocket (laughs) right you gotta you gotta run through these things first and so uh, in August, the SLS Pathfinder was at Stennis for the team there to practice the lift and installation techniques. Uh, there's a link in the show notes with a time lapse of this because they have to basically pick it up and set it on the uh, the B2 test stand there at Stennis for the green run, which, of course, is the full-length firing of the, the motors on the core stage. So they have this huge ground-based crane, this big boom, and they basically lift the mock-up up from its horizontal position, how it comes in. They pick it up vertically and then lift it up onto the stand. And you do this with a test subject. So if something goes wrong, you can uh, figure out what happened before you make a, a really expensive mistake. <laughs> yeah. You want a test drive is what we're saying. It's an SLS tri- test drive. Mm-hmm. So after Stennis, it was loaded onto NASA's Pegasus barge, which took the shuttle external tank uh, to the Cape. So this is more reused shuttle era stuff. And uh, was, it was brought to Kennedy Space Center at Launch, Launch Complex 39 at the end of September. And this is going on now as we speak, uh, like they did at Stennis, practicing offloading it from the bars, uh, lifting it, 
stacking it, basically all the, the ground support stuff you have to do. Remember, the core stage has to be mated with solid rocket boosters. It has to have Orion placed on top of it. And mo- all those procedures that have to take place to move it in the vehicle assembly building and elsewhere, uh, those will be taking place at Kennedy over the coming weeks. So uh, if you're down there and you see something that looks like an SLS, it's, you know, it's a big uh, big replica. Yeah, it's the, the fake SLS. But. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it is a fun time, too, to also talk about the name Pathfinder. It's a historic name when it comes to this sort of thing. So uh, the Space Shuttle Pathfinder was a test orbiter built in 1977, and it was used to test things like mating and unmating it from the shuttle transport carrier, which you and I just saw in Texas uh, mm-hmm. not, not too long ago. It was also used to test uh, mating the shuttle to the external fuel tank and picking it up in the vehicle assembly building. You know, there are all those photos of uh, the shuttle being picked up kind of nose first. All that stuff was tested and designed with the Space Shuttle Pathfinder. And now we have the SLS Pathfinder uh, following in its footsteps. So a very important process in getting all this stuff ready. The Space Shuttle Pathfinder, by the way, now is at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama, made it to a fuel tank and um, external solid rocket booster. So I've seen it. It's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, not a real shuttle, but it is built in a way that you can do all these test things to it with the weight distribution and everything uh, as accurate as possible. So not necessarily the uh, the sexiest part of building a new rocket, but a very important one nonetheless. Yeah, you got to do it. This is the thing that I I have learned maybe the most from this podcast is all of these details about building the rockets and testing the rockets and moving them around, moving heavy equipment around, like the logistics story behind so much of the space stuff, I think is kind of fascinating. Um, Also, the fact that they test rockets by like strapping them down and just firing them while they're held down. That's I mean, I guess how else would you do it? But it just blows me away. I just, I love that, that whole, the whole idea that it's like, no, 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 we're going to fire the rocket. It's not going to go into space. Nope. We're just going to hold it down and watch it fire. Like, wow. So rocket science is what I'm saying. It's, uh, yeah. it's cool. And rocket logistics, also cool. Well, like the green run at Stennis, right? It's going to be the whole yeah. thing minus the SRBs, but clamp down, it's going to fire for like eight minutes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, Really gotta, a you really gotta make sure you have that clamp down really good. Yeah, the last thing you want to do is launch your building into space, <laughs> right? If something goes slightly wrong and you're you're suddenly your building is flying up into the air, that's not good. Not good. Yeah, that's bad. You, you gotta hold it down. You gotta make sure it's all those screws are really tight. Is what we're saying. So everybody, yeah, everybody, hang on. So yeah, keep this rocket on the ground. Uh, SLS Pathfinder, and it'll go back to New Orleans when when they're done with it in Florida, and uh, be ready for whatever's next for it. So it's barge travel, barge barges. Up the coast of Florida and in the Gulf of Mexico, it just it's and space at barges. some point, I assume down the road, SLS Pathfinder will be you know uh, stood up on a stand somewhere for visitors to come see and learn about it. So. At some space center somewhere, yeah, yeah, almost certainly. We'll go. We'll go find it one day when it makes it. We will. We will. Uh, I don't think it will commit to going to the opening of that exhibit because no, we have a history with the SLS on this podcast. Time. But you know, yeah. They'll be watching for us. Yeah. Like that picture you took of me in Texas where like, I, I felt suddenly very embarrassed to be near the <laughs> yeah, SLS model. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's that guy. All right. We've got some more stuff to talk about, but do you want to tell us about our second sponsor? Sure. Our second sponsor is ExpressVPN. 
Now, you might think that nobody wants your online data or to snoop on you, but the fact is there are whole industries built around taking and aggregating your private information, how you're browsing the web, where you're browsing the web, what you're searching for, all of those things. They aggregate it together. They look at your IP address. They create a profile. They sell that to others. There's so much out there for ad companies and more, and we're not even talking about like bad actors, people who are trying to steal your data and compromise it and and do terrible things with it beyond just uh, violating your privacy in order to sell ads on the internet to you. Anyway, ExpressVPN can help with all of this. It runs in the background on your computer, your phone, your tablet, and encrypts your data, and it hides your public IP address. So they won't know that you're browsing uh, for, you know, some doing some online shopping at home. They, it'll be at some random IP address that's out there in the world. They can't connect it back to you. Uh, your If your ISP is analyzing traffic on its network, uh, you aren't part of that. You are in a secure tunnel going somewhere else, and the your ISP isn't looking at what you're doing either. Just download the app, you click to connect, and that's it. You're protected. ExpressVPN was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It uses new cutting-edge technology called Trusted Server that makes sure there are no logs of what you do online. Costs less than $7 a month and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I have used it. I've got it on my iPad. It is as simple as pressing one button and that's it. You're not going to get any one of those like, oh, I was searching for this product and now all the ads I see are this product. Um creepy weirdness like that that stuff can go away when they're not tracking your ip address it's very nice protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free by going to expressvpn.com slash liftoff that's e-x-p-r-e-s-s-v-p-n.com slash liftoff for three months free with a one-year package take back your online privacy go to expressvpn.com slash liftoff thank you to expressvpn for supporting liftoff and all of relay fm all right, you want to talk about what's going on at the International Space Station? Oh, man. Uh, do you like, Stephen, do you like spacewalks? Um, this would have been when you were uh, pretty young, when you were like six, seven, eight. I don't know if you remember, they fixed the Hubble. And that was, um, so when you were a kid, um, it was like on CNN. Because that was back when Ted Turner owned and ran yeah. CNN, and he liked space. So super, he just would, super into space. <laughs> he would just be like, just stop showing things on CNN for four hours while they fix the Hubble. We'll just show that. But, sir, that's just mostly like silence and occasional garbled things from an astronaut. Do it anyway. So they did it. Anyway, um, I so I like spacewalks, too. They're long and can be boring, but they're also kind of fascinating. And these days, you could stream it and put it in a little window on your computer mm-hmm. while you work. It's great. It's awesome. Anyway, um, they're going to be doing a lot of spacewalks at the International Space Station. And what's the biggest reason why? Because sometimes you need to change the batteries on your space station. It's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. Or, or your car or your video game controller or whatever. Sometimes the batteries run out. And you need to put in new batteries. And that is what's happening at the ISS. They have all of these batteries on the truss, which is the the huge metal kind of like superstructure right. that runs the backbone. across. It is the backbone of the International Space Station. It's huge. It's the part that they can't fit in the mock-ups and can't fit in the pool that we saw in Houston because it's too big. You have to take it in a little piece because it's the biggest part of the ISS. Anyway, they're batteries all along the truss, and they're old. They're nickel-hydrogen batteries. Um, they need to be replaced. They have uh, ferried up. The, the cargo ships have 
brought up new lithium ion batteries, like the ones that are in all of our devices today, and they need to replace them. But of course, they're out on the truss, which means you've got to go outside. If you're an astronaut, you got to take you got to go outside, you got to take the batteries out, you got to put the new batteries in, and you got to do it in the vacuum of space, which is hard. So to do this, uh, they did one on Sunday as we record this, October 6th. That was the first spacewalk. That was Christina Koch and Andrew Morgan. They were out there for seven hours. They replaced some batteries. With They took them out. They put in a new one. And they actually did what they call get-ahead work, which is like literally if they still got time, because they were allotted about seven hours, they start like going ahead on the checklist mm-hmm. and it lets them get done faster with the whole project. So they actually removed a second set of batteries and then came inside. So uh, that'll make the next spacewalk easier. There are four more of these that have to happen to do all of this. So um, there are there are uh, so many different spacewalks going on. October 11th, 16, 21... 25, 31, there are lots of spacewalks planned out there to do um, to do this battery replacement. Um, they also need to fix the alpha magnetic spectrometer, which is this device that's looking for dark matter by capturing cosmic rays. They are gonna, it's going to be five spacewalks to do that. Um, so th- that's 10 spacewalks in the very near future, like this year, by the end of the year. And just to put that in perspective, the average number of spacewalks in a year since basically since the shuttle was finished, because when the shuttle was there, there were some more spacewalks involving the shuttle. But it's like seven a year. And there have already been several this year, and then they're planning to do 10 now. So it's a it's a bumper year for uh, spacewalks. Um, this also means something that we talked about a little while ago. The first all-woman spacewalk is actually going to happen. Good. Um, which didn't happen earlier. It's Christina Koch and Jessica Meyer, and they are going to do a spacewalk on October 21st. Now, if you remember what happened the last time, uh, they had a they, they had these uh, things called the hut, which is the hard upper torso of these things, and they're sized. And what what's happening is all the astronauts who are doing the spacewalks now, who are on the ISS, are using the medium sized hut. And that's good because it takes hours to swap the huts um, to get a different uh, size. And so when when they uh, decided not to do the all-woman spacewalk before, it was largely because astronaut Nick Haig, who recently returned to Earth, um, used the large size. And so they had him configured for large and medium, and they would have had to take many, many hours to deconfigure the large one and put in the medium one so that they had two mediums. But now all the astronauts out there take a medium. And that means that they can, they can have both women who take mediums now uh, out there at the same time. Whereas when Nick Haig was there, he's a big old astronaut and needed a large. And that meant they had to have sort of one large and one medium doing all the spacewalks. Anyway, there's a lot, um, a lot of spacewalks to be had. Uh, there's a nice thread that I will put in the show notes that is by Mary Robinette Kowal, who wrote a couple of great novels about women in space. And she's been commenting on um, on the women doing spacewalks and a really nice thread about how a lot of the unconscious assumptions about men being in space have all of these follow-on impacts and it's things like the the huts and what's available there. But it's also, she made this point that was really good, like there's a, a little restraining thing that you can tuck your feet into so that you don't float around in the space station and you can look out the window 
and it's made for a height that the women on the space station aren't. And so you can either tuck your feet in and not see out the window, or you can float and see out the window, but you can't do both because it was just an assumption that was made because most of the stuff in the ISS was designed or is based on a legacy design from um, an era where most or all of the people in space were men. So, uh, and, and we're of a, of a certain height range. So it's a, I'll put that a link to that in the show notes, but in the end, lots of spacewalks happening. And yes, the first all woman spacewalk looks like it's going to happen on October 21st. I'm excited to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. It should be great. And the, the walks this year will wrap up, should wrap up all that battery replacement, which they started like two years ago. I think it's a big project and yeah, but they're, they're gonna, they're gonna get it done. Like this is definitely like the, we're going to do it this month. This is our time Mm -hmm. for the battery replacement. Plus the fixing the other thing. They, I don't know what it is. I mean, somebody decided that this was the time to prioritize, um, these these spacewalks or maybe i don't know because i'm just speculating here maybe this was one of those things where they had they decided this a while ago and they prioritized to train this particular expedition crew on all of this stuff and then get them all in place and that this is like the primary one of the primary duties of this particular crew is you're going to be the ones who are trained to do all of this spacewalk stuff Mm -hmm. because we got a lot of maintenance to do and it's their job to do that maintenance. Yeah. And that training, as as we saw, takes a long time. I mean, they, they spacewalks do happen sort of without a ton of advance warning. Sometimes something breaks, but these sort of maintenance issues they train for well in advance. And so, I would imagine you're right that the the planning sort of all coalesced where this expedition is really going to be heavy on these on these items. And I would I would guess that the battery placement work is all sort of similar type tasks, right? That obviously there are different places along the truss, so that makes things varied. But I would imagine the actual work of replacing the batteries is pretty similar. And so maybe you gain some efficiency by training uh, somebody to do a bunch of those over the course of an expedition as opposed to stringing out even longer. Yep. All right, lastly, we're going to take a trip to Planet Nine. Or is it a planet? Maybe it's a black hole? There's all sorts of crazy ideas going on out there. Yeah. Would you be sad if this is a black hole and not a planet? No. No. I I think it's really interesting. Now, you know, Mike Brown, who is one of the astronomers who's really been pushing this Planet Nine theory, the idea that there is a six Earth mass object in the deep solar system, and they're looking for it, and they think it's a planet. They think it's kind of a mini Neptune. Um, But he said, you know, it could be anything. Um, in fact, he said it could be a six Earth mass hamburger or a burrito, <laughs> <laughs> but that it could also be a six Earth mass black hole because it doesn't matter. And in, in, in the end, the physics don't care what the masses are made out of, although he thinks that it's um, it's maybe as about as likely that it's a hamburger than it is a black hole. But still, like it would be cool. Um, and, and everything that Brown and uh, and Constantine Batygin have been working on for Planet Nine is based on gravity. Um, it would be interesting if they looked for uh, for light reflecting from this thing and failed to find it, if this might be a reason why they couldn't find it, is that it's not a visible in that way kind of, kind of a mass. Who knows? Um, so what... 
you know, five to 15 times Earth mass. Uh, Brown thinks it's very likely right about six. It's it's far away between 45 billion and 100 billion kilometers from the sun. It's very far away, very hard to see. They've been looking with telescopes. It requires precision. Um, it requires kind of perfect observation nights. They think it's it, it potentially could take several more years before they can search all of the sky looking for this thing. But it, what if it were a planet-massed black hole? Um, it could be surrounded by dark matter. It could have, uh, you know, be releasing gamma rays that make it easier to spot if you're looking for something that's a black hole instead of for a planet. Um, there's a theory that interactions between dark matter and dark antimatter might create flashes, but that hasn't been proven. There's a lot of not yet proven things that this would actually be, this is why it would be okay if it were a black hole. Um, so there's a there's a scientific paper on it. Physics are going to be uh, coming through publicly available data from the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which is orbiting the Earth and has been looking around since 2008. They're going to be looking for sporadic gamma ray flashes that might be seen from a very slowly moving planet or black hole like planet nine um it a a six earth mass black hole seems weird right because most of the black holes that we know about are either from collapsed stars or are at the center of galaxies and they're super massive black holes and this would be a very um light mass black hole And that means it would probably be what's called a primordial black hole, which is this theoretical object that would have been created uh, after right after the Big Bang in a very specific era. And it's been theorized for a long time, but we've never actually seen evidence of the existence of a primordial low mass black hole, even though many different theories of the early days of the universe do predict them. So... If it was found, it would be proof that primordial black holes existed. It would actually tell us something about the earliest days of the universe. Um, but I, I see Mike Brown's point is that, you know, as unlikely as it is that there was a big uh, planet and it was ejected into this weird orbit around our sun, um, I think it's even less likely that a primordial black hole was drifting by our solar system and was lightly intercepted by mm-hmm. it doesn't mean it couldn't be the case and and we can debate it and this is a very novel interesting idea of like well maybe we can't see it maybe we're looking for the wrong thing um but it also says something about how much how much mass matters to stuff like this which is they are intuiting planet nine's existence based on gravitational interaction and this is where the hamburger comes in it could be six earth masses of anything causing that gravitational right. interaction it really it really could it's just that based on what we know about solar systems in general and our solar system in particular a something we would call a planet because of the size of it but you know rock and gas and ice in a ball is probably what it is but this is a really novel interesting thing and that would be an amazing discovery if we found that there is a a primordial black hole of six earth masses that's a very slowly kind of orbiting around our sun that would be fascinating and tell us a a lot of different stuff that we didn't know before about the universe are you hungry for for a big burrito now yeah i want a space burrito now (laughs) really six earth masses really it's all you can eat (laughs) it's a big burrito it's a big boy yeah, I mean, I, I get what Mike Brown is saying, and uh, I think that whatever this is out there, if it's found, is super interesting because it changes how we understand 
the way our solar system is constructed, right? And and whether that's a planet or a small black hole, which is interesting of itself, or something else, giant burrito, it's interesting in any way, and I'm excited to see uh, what comes of this new study of these images, if anything. Yeah. Space burrito. It's probably not space burritos, but... Yeah, I was going to say, this is one of those answers to the... Uh... Betteridge's law of headlines, which is, is it a black hole? Well, probably not. It's just like, is it aliens? Yeah, nah, mm, no. Probably, probably not. not. But uh, it's a fun idea. And, and science, you know, one of the great things about science is asking questions like this. So like, why are we even assuming that it's a planet? Yeah. What if it were a primordial black hole? It's like, well, even if it's not, it's worth exploring what if. Mm-hmm. Like, how would we spot it? What what are we looking for? Is that a, an assumption we should not make that it's a planet, and uh, and that's that's fun too. But I'm sure you know Mike Brown and Constantine Batiagan are out there. They they are still booking their their telescope time, right? That's still happening. <laughs> well, I think that about does it for this time on liftoff. Yeah, I think so. I um, unless somebody sent some tweets since we started recording, <laughs> I think we're safe to end for a fortnight. That sounds good to me. If you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about, they're on the website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 109. While you're there, there's some other stuff to do. You can send us an email with feedback or follow-up, or you can head over to our uh, our Tumblr. Link's there in the sidebar where we post stories and videos and stuff in between episodes. I got some stuff queued up for the next couple of days. It's pretty fun. So go check that out. Uh, or you can uh, get in touch on Twitter. You can find Jason there as Snell, and you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.